this week on the Backtable podcast. Even if your small contribution to educating someone, it plays a big role because that is there for them for the rest of their life. And that has a role where you might not have actively done surgery on, on the patient they're doing, but you definitely have your contribution. That's the strength of education. To me, uh, you might not see its fruits right then and there, but these are saplings you have planted and then someone else might be enjoying the fruits, but it's good to see all these things happen. Actually, one of the beautiful thing was one of the patients we operated on many years back comes back every year just to say hello and how we have changed the life. So these are things which makes you happy, makes you do what you want to do and makes you get up every day and say, I, I can do more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with a hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I have a very special guest today. I have Dr. Deepak Mehta. He is a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, where he's the director of the Complex Airway Center as well as professor in otolaryngology at Baylor College of Medicine. He completed medical school in Mysore, India, and his residency in otolaryngology at South Trent in Nottingham in the United Kingdom. He then pursued a fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And Deepak is here to talk to us about his experience with international outreach with tracheostomy. Welcome to the show, Deepak. How are you? Hey, thanks, Gopi, for putting this together. This is my first of hopefully many more podcasts to come. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on so early. Uh, we're doing this a little bit early, your time right now, because you are going to be one of the instructors for the ASPO Bootcamp. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this was a neat idea. Actually, part of it was COVID made it happen that David Zoff and the rest of the team members, they came up with this 3D printed larynxes. So it was a good way for the fellows to uh, do it and we tried virtually and it worked really well and this is the way the education is going that things change and we need to adapt that and make sure the education goes on and but at the same time adapt to new technology coming on your podcast is a good example and we to get educated as well so basically that's what we'll be doing is through zoom we'll be connecting with the fellows across the country and we'll be teaching them how to do actually initially it was mainly airway surgery but now i think there are other aspects of pediatric ent which are being done so i'm very excited this is the third year that they've been doing this that's exciting you've always had a big interest in education Tell us a little bit about uh, C-surgeries, because that's a different surgical education as well. Yeah, C-surgeries basically was a thought between me and Gresham Richter. Um, we are the co-founders. And the idea was, in those days, most of the teaching was happening on DVDs. And people used to get DVDs on textbooks and videos and stuff. So when we were chatting about it, we thought, like, maybe we should have a way where we can have it on a website that people can get access to. That's how it started. And then we thought, there are lots of videos on YouTube, for example, surgical videos. But how do you make sure those are all good quality? So that's how we started setting up 
what we call as a the first peer-reviewed video journal. And to my surprise, it's a pleasant surprise that a lot of people adapted to it. And again, thanks to COVID in some ways, because then we could have virtual conferences, webinars, and that became very popular and it became a good way for educating globally. And we had great response at times. We had people from over 100 countries log in to join some of our webinars. So it's been a great experience sharing surgical knowledge to the rest of the world. Yeah. No, it's funny. You uh, used the example of uh, DVDs initially, because I think of in terms of podcasts, you know, audio files, right? Um, With CDs and lectures, you could buy off the academy to review for boards. And then it became like an MP3 file you could purchase. And now to me, that's what, you know, the education through podcasting is as well as just whether it's visual audio files. Now we have a totally different way in which to share the information and grow a global community of instructors and students and share experiences. So it's it's really cool. Tell us a little bit about your practice. Moving to Texas Children's, one of the main objectives for me moving here was to build the airway program here. My practice mainly is airway surgery with obviously general surgery, which includes doing tubes and tonsils. But within the airway surgery, we have three different aspects. One is the open airway reconstructions, the LTR, CTR. The second aspect is the complex airways, complex tracheal surgery, where we do with the cardiothoracic surgeons, mainly slight tracheoplasty and few other things which we can do on the trachea and bronchus. The third aspect is uh, exit procedures and fetal surgery. So I'm part of the fetal team, so a lot of it is actually prenatal assessment on which patient needs what and who ends up needing uh, an exit procedure and then being part of the exit team to help deliver those babies. We also did our first fetoscopic airway dilation and stent placement. So we had a baby uh, fetus who was in chaos, but the mom was at risk of not being able to deliver with exit procedure. So what we did is fetoscopically we accessed the larynx and did a balloon dilation and then placed a stent so that we didn't have to do an exit and deliver the baby with the C-section. So it's, it's exciting to do new things and it's a good to have a great team to work with. That's really cool. I think I listened to all that you do with Complex Airway and it makes me think about one of our first conversations, which was just recently, of all things, as we were both in Texas for a long time, but it was nice to finally meet you at ASPO about a year ago. And uh, when I think about complex airway, I, I think about the backbone is a good tracheostomy. And we know that tracheostomy, and especially in neonates and children, is very different than adults. And you started to tell me about your international outreach with tracheostomy. So let's get into it. That's the focus today. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with that. So a little bit of my background, obviously you told that I got trained in India, uh, did my medical schooling there. So as part of giving back, at some point I had gone back to India looking at options of how I can give back for the training they had given me. And I met up quite a few people and they all made fun of me. They said airway surgery, all that doesn't happen here. So I got a little bit disappointed. So at one of the academy meetings, I ran into Dr. Raman, who comes from Bangalore. And once he came to know that I was a pediatric ENT surgeon, and 
uh, special interest in airway, he said, we get a lot of referrals on all these various kids with airway issues. And I would like us to collaborate and do something. And so that was an opportunity for me. So sometimes you think like simple conversations can lead to bigger things. And that's exactly what happened. So that developed into a partnership where initially Dr. Wilking from Cincinnati and Dr. Elru at that time was in Cincinnati. Now he's in Dayton. The three of us decided to go to Bangalore, visit and start off more as, a, as an educational thing. So the three of us joined in and then subsequently Dr. Sandhu from Luzan, Kishore Sandhu, he joined in as well. And then over the recent years, uh, Shian Vijay Shekharan from Perth, Haley Herbert from Perth. So we became a core team, international team. We joined in. The core idea was to educate the surgeons locally, but also help manage some of the complex airway stuff. Um, because a child having a tracheostomy is a big deal. It's a big deal in our country. It's a big deal in any country, especially with limited resources, with parents not having the same kind of setup to take care of the tracheostomy. And think about even with all the resources we have, we still have a mortality of one person. And one of the things which uh, Robin Cotton, my mentor from Cincinnati, the way he changed the whole practice of doing NTRs was, in his time, the mortality rate for tracheostomy was 25%. So we take it for granted. So a lot of change. And his goal for starting to do open airway reconstruction was mainly because he said, if I can change that 25% to even 5%, we are still winning. So that's how he started doing uh, laryngotracheal reconstructions. And part of that inspiration comes to dealing with anywhere in the world where you have kids with tracheostomy and the goal is one, to educate the parents, but also the local providers, but also to see what can be done to get rid of that tracheostomy. So we started off with multiple strategies. One Number one was just to educate the surgeons in India and Southeast Asia, actually, uh, they have surgeons coming from the neighboring countries as well. Uh, they come there and initially it started off just with lectures and so on, like caliber, dissection. Was it just for pediatric specific or was it adults, any patient? This was mainly for pediatric because I think the adult airway work is pretty established and it didn't need the nuances as we do with pediatrics. So our goal was mainly pediatrics. Although we get teenagers, older kids, 19-year-olds with neck wounds and stuff like that. So we do treat older patients occasionally, but our goal is to mainly teach the pediatric age group. So part of that was just education. And as we were educating, we started to see that they were referring all these patients to say, can you assess them and come up with a plan for them? So then we thought like, okay, doing open air surgery will be difficult, but let's just assess and talk to them on what we would do, how we should go about. So it started off with that. And then, so in India, they do live surgery where patients come in and then you are connected with the audience so that audience can interact with you. And part of that, what was the game changer for me was one of those days 
we were doing a bunch of endoscopies and they said, okay, this is the last endoscopy you're going. And then as I was walking out, I saw a mom holding a child with severe strider. And I said, what's happening with this child? And they said, oh, she was part of the assessment, but we are done with time, so we can't do it anymore and we don't have enough instruments. I said, no, I'm not walking out from here without taking care of this. So I said, take her back, take this kid into the operating room. Let's have a look right now and see what we can do. And while all this was going live, because this was still part of the conference, and they said, we don't have suspension laryngoscopy because we used up for all our previous cases. So I said, it doesn't matter. We got hold of the laryngoscope from the anesthesiologist, used that as suspension, did a supraglottoplasty, cold steel, like literally less than a minute. And then the beauty was not all our supraglottoplasties worked like this, but the kid was seen in recovery, which showed that in recovery, the strider completely gone. And that was like a changing thing to say, we can do more just by being there and being able to just educate what needs to be done. Because this was a kid who was like eight, nine months, struggled all those eight, nine months. You you talk about failure to thrive. This kid was like skeleton without any muscles on. So you could make a big difference. So th that's when we started to say, maybe we should do some of these open airway surgeries as well. And my worry was, do we have the team and we need to educate them because it's it's not just surgery, especially airway surgery, but it could be any kind of surgery. You're talking about a team you need to have pediatric anesthesiologists who can understand what needs to be done. Then you need post-operative care, including ICU care. And then you need your local team of ENT surgeons who can be managing them post-operatively. And in a lot of ways, I was very lucky. Uh, Dr. Raman's team put together, their anesthesiology team was amazing. Um, you can't ask for anything better. And the next part was the ICU team, and they were very receptive. They were like, what needs to be done, we'll do it. And then the important part comes is like, who funds all this? Because you can get patients coming in, but to take care of this, any surgeries are pretty expensive, but open airway surgery with multiple scopes, it can be very expensive and a lot of these patients come from very poor background who can't afford anything. So as part of that, what happened was, again, Dr. Raman's team reached out to some corporate houses to show them what we were doing and to our surprise, we collected funds to take care of all these surgeries for free. So Literally, all these patients come in and we operate on them. They don't have to spend a penny to get everything, including their drugs, uh, whatever is needed. Everything is taken care of by this this foundation, which uh, raises the money. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you have a, a big education piece and then you have a big team building piece. And then there's an actual clinical setup, right? Assessing patients, reviewing cases, and then going and teaching from surgical technique, how to think about it, post-op care, to then getting funding. So definitely lots of pieces to put together that are complicated too. It's not just like a yes or no 
Tell me, let's first start with the education piece. How do you develop educational materials for something um, that's pretty complicated, that requires a lot of resources in a setting that may have some things that are similar to our setting, um, but also going to be very different? How, how did you guys go about that? And who was part of the team to put some of that information together? So it starts off with building a team of experts. You need to have the real experts in our specialty who are willing to join in, who wants to partner, who wants to contribute. So that became our number one thing. And that's part of how we reached out to all these experts around. And the core team is of international experts is uh, Kishore Sandhu, Shyan, Vijay Shekran, and Haley Herbert, along with me. But there are multiple contributors who join in for the educational component of it. And part of it is, it can be as a seminar where all these lectures are given. And some of it is, we need to keep in mind, we in U.S. have a pediatric ENT as a separate specialty. That has not happened in most of the world, actually. Even in Europe, it's not as, as established as it is here. And a lot of adult people do some pediatric and that happens. So a lot of the education part was to make sure we differentiate what is adult laryngology, how is it different in, in the pediatric age group. So that became an important part of it. And the other aspect of it is the videos play a big role. So having videos of different surgeries and taking them through step by step. So it's, it's like taking a video of laryngotracheal reconstruction and stop it at different points to say these are important steps to do it. And it could be for a simple thing like a tracheostomy. Doing tracheostomy, to me, it's the one of the most difficult operations because you're taking a very sick child, making a little hole, and at the critical point, you're exchanging the airway where a lot of things can go wrong. So getting it right needs a lot of little steps towards it to make it perfectly right. Yeah. So that became an important part where we were breaking down videos. And then the next part came in where we were doing on cadavers. So we got pig larynxes, sheep larynxes, worked on them. And then now we have the 3D printed larynxes. So it's moved on from there. But that became our next thing so that they get a hands-on experience on how to do things. The next part came is uh, life surgery. So what we did was have a setup where as you're operating, you're communicating with the audience live so that they get to see exactly how it's done. It's not like an edited video, but they get to see each and every part of it. So when you were doing the live surgery, was this on patients at the clinic in Bangalore or is that sort of where the live surgery or were you doing any live surgery from your own cases in Houston? No, none of them were done in Houston because it gets too complicated. When you're doing it from here, HIPAA, information, even the whole setup, it becomes extremely expensive to set up something like this here. Whereas there, it's like we have three operating rooms. They're all set up with cameras and all those stuff. And then patients from all over Southeast Asia come there for surgery. They know ahead of time when we are going, so they come in. And then the surgeons from, again, all over Southeast Asia come, they are aware of the conference happening, and they come in and they get direct one-on-one -on -one kind of education on 
how these surgeries are done. And it's just not me, the other parts of people in the team who do the surgeries as well. And so how much of the live surgery or the education with surgical management was endoscopic and airway surgery and how much was open? So as part of that, our initial thing was mainly teaching how to do a good endoscopy. What are the things you should be looking for? How do you go about it? And that becomes very important. Even if you are assessing someone with strider, what are the different things you need to look? If there is a kid with tracheostomy and subglottic stenosis, how do you assess that? That becomes very important. So there is a lot of that assessment happens. I would say the next goal is simple surgeries like supraglottoplasty, for example, um, balloon dilations, and also salvage balloon dilations. Some of them be an LTR. How do you salvage some of those by balloon dilations or other endoscopic work? I would say about 50% of the work is either endoscopic assessment or endoscopic work. And then the other 50% becomes the open airway surgery, although it's 50% of the work, but obviously takes most of the time. And initially it was just two days of operating and then we were done. But slowly we saw the volume coming in that over the last few years, we have been going for a week and pre-conference for four to five days, we just operate and all these surgeries are recorded and someone edits them and makes it part of the conference so that we can teach them. And then the last two days or three days, we keep them for live surgery. So the uh, amount of work which is happening has increased with time. The other good thing I've, I've seen is now that we have been doing this for 15 years, what we have seen is there are surgeons all across who are doing good surgeries and we've created a community. So we've created a WhatsApp group that people can openly communicate with various experts across the world and they can post their cases, discuss what's happening. Obviously, they've learned some stuff from the conference. They go back and they use it in their practice. But what we have seen is over the years, like I used to see as a fellow in Cincinnati is you see other people doing LTRs and most of them are successful, but then you start to see the failures coming your way. And that's a trend we are seeing, which in some ways it's challenging, but at the same time, it's good to see that good stuff is being done, having learned from the various conferences and through our live surgery. And now people are doing good surgeries and what we are seeing is the real difficult cases or the failures. So do you guys still go about for the one week? And is it every year? Do you go several times a year? And is it still in Bangalore or are there other sites in India that you go to? So I, I try to go at least once a year. Sometimes it might happen more than once a year, but at least once a year is, is our commitment for one week. And we do it mainly in Bangalore, mainly because we know the setup. As I said earlier, it's, it's all about setup. Surgery can be done but if you don't have the right setup, it can be a challenge. So mainly do it at Bangalore. I have done surgeries in other places as well, but those are usually one-off surgery. For example, I'm also associated with an institution in Manipal, and I had gone there just to teach. And then they said, hey, we have a kid with possible bilateral coenal atresia, and we have never done this before. So I said, okay get them into OR, OR tomorrow morning, we'll do it. So I did the first uh, 
coronal atresia repair on a neonate. And then sometimes you think like, how did this happen? Of all the places, they had to be on that particular day that I was visiting and they recognized it and it happened. And luckily everything went well and the child did well, but it also helped educate the local people. So I do it occasionally as, as part of teaching if I'm going there and if they have a case. The main thing is you need to be careful. Uh, we get carried away. We as surgeons want to do things, but we need to just make sure that as part of that, you don't cause more harm than good. So you need to be very careful, especially with airway surgery, but it could be with anything you do that you need to be careful. The other aspect is you need to be very careful looking at your post-op results, just as you would in your parent place as well. Just doing surgery and walking off is not good. You need to have a follow-through, make sure how the patients are doing afterwards. And again, technology is helped with WhatsApp. It's easy for uh, us to communicate and you get the feedback. This is how the endoscopy looks today. What should we do? And so we do one week of surgery, but it's rest of the year is a lot of back and forth on things are done. Yeah, because you're still, as we know, coenal tresia can rescar. <laughs> Trachs can have their own problems. You know, airways can get narrow again after a dilation. So you're right, there is still a lot of follow-up, follow-through. And these are many of which are chronic problems. So I think that the initial piece of really educating the medical staff, your ENTs, your pediatric anesthesiologist, ICU, I would imagine that there's a lot with nursing and RT that comes into play. Because, you know, when I think about, especially tracheostomies, right? I think about, you know, before we do tracheostomies, you know, there's the social work involved. There's the trach team with education involved to the families and the parents. There's a lot to check in terms of resources here uh, when it comes to what happens to the child with a tracheostomy after they're out of the hospital when it comes to you know, being able to pay the electricity bill to make sure the suction canister is going to work to where they live and, you know, what floor uh, they might live in their building. Tell me about some of those social aspects that come along with this. How did you guys address that? Who did you work with in Bangalore to kind of help really sort of set those ties in? Because those are the things that are going to keep some of this sustainable too. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things which I learned regarding tracheostomy, biggest thing we changed management of tracheostomy was parental education. So we talked about mortality, 25%. LTRs did help getting rid of some of the trachs, but I think the crucial aspect of tracheostomy management was perioperative care and then your parental education. And so that became a big deal because obviously people love big surgeries and all that, but it becomes very important that what we had learned, it took us 20, 30 years for us to realize this was important and we gradually changed things and made it happen. The beauty of this is what we learned in, say, the last 20, 30 years, we can translate that in one or two years in a developing country because we've learned it. We learned it the hard way, slowly realized like this is very important that we make sure these things are done. And that's part of what our goal is. We are working on it, which includes Number one would be language barrier. We talk about two, three different languages in this country and we struggle. Say, oh, we have a Spanish patient. We need to make sure, think about India. Every state 
has multiple languages. So uh, one of the things was to have some kind of a handbook which is in their local language and which is accessible. The other thing we take for granted is electricity that we assume everyone has 24-7 electricity. And sometimes you need to come up with new ways or different ways of, and again, you see some of these parents come up with very smart ways of doing it. One of the parents came with, with a hand pump. So with a hand pump, you can do suction. And that was very neat. It worked better than our suction, actually. There are different things you need to make sure. And the last thing is we assume, like, tracheostomy, you need to change every month. And we see sometimes some of these patients have had tracheostomy for years and not been changed. So again, developing a system when they are aware and also providing the care which is needed, including the equipment. And most of these places have now started to adopt like our package. So once the tracheostomy is done, they give them instructions on what needs to be done, how to take care of it. And these are the essentials they should have. It doesn't have exactly like what we have here, but the crucial things are there. Having a backup trach, having suction, those kind of things are there and giving advice on how often they should be cleaning the trach. Um, those are things, again, can make a big difference. And it was important part of how we go about doing this, including having instructions in various languages. Yeah. In terms of the tracheostomies, do you also, through the outreach, provide and supply tracheostomies? Or is this something that the hospital system in India has been able to uh, acquire on its own? Taking tracheostomies from here has been a little bit of a challenge. Number one, usually there are mainly three tracheostomy companies who do it. And it was very difficult to get hold of enough tracheostomies. And the way I looked at it is, um, these are some things you can donate 50 tracheostomies, but you're talking about a population of 1.4 billion. And even if I provide, say, 50 or 100 tracheostomy to one side, what happens to rest of it? So our goal was not to provide free tracheostomies, but mainly making sure the educational aspect of it works. Because then it becomes very difficult because how do you distribute those tracheostomies? What goes about it? It'll be easier for us. And then you need to think about the cost of tracheostomies in US is very different to the cost of tracheostomy in India. So it might be much more easier if the local people raise funds to have tracheostomy. But our goal was mainly to provide the educational aspect of it. Yeah. Um, going back to the educational aspect of it, you know, we talked about the importance of educating the parents. Um, and I think that's the backbone. That's that's the huge piece of it in terms of outcomes. You know, is there a role that you found for advocates or community health workers uh, specific for these kids in the community? I, I just think of um, patients coming from a long way or transportation and maybe not being able to come in and do the trait check in six months or whatnot, or if they have a question that maybe they can't access the clinic where, you know, the trach was placed. Is there any sort of level in the community that's like a team that can also help with this? That's a good thought. Something I need to work on next. I've been thinking of having some kind of a central nurse who has the educational background where parents have access. So again, 
thinking about how spread out India is and spread out where all the patients come from. The state answer to your question is, I don't think there is a setup like that where there is a social worker. But one of the thoughts I had was have a central nurse, which is funded through our foundation, so that people have access. So that, say there is a physician who is taking care, but was not sure how to take care of a tracheostomy, or there's a nurse there on the floor, and they one of the nurses has some. So have like the parents get a central number so that they can have access to a well-educated nurse or tracheostomy care who can help with answering those questions. And same thing goes with any needs they have. Just like we have in our setup where we have a nurse who reaches out, all our patients reaches out as a first step so that she can kind of triage but also educate them on what needs to be done. A similar kind of setup is something what we are planning. But it's a good idea that the education needs and the some of the help for these patients needs to go to the primary level so that they are taken care of more appropriately. Because I just think about in an uber niche academic ENT pediatric practice, we have a, a lot of wonderful nurses that can answer these questions. But sometimes it's like when that one airway nurse, your main airway nurse is gone and all the questions start coming in, it's overwhelming even for our own clinic staff or even as a partner, you know, uh, when my partner is out of town and now our airway patient needs something, you know what I mean? To have that person to access to call, even if it's a small, which may just turn out to be a little, quote, granulation, right? Like something that's not a huge, a huge deal. But at the same time, those are things which can be mitigated very early on and prevent from making it into a bigger complication. So I, I think that's a that's a very good point, and I, I'm definitely working on that this year. So you have inspired me to say this is the next next thing I, I have to do. It's been on my mind that we need to have a nurse like that. Uh, it's just putting it together and also getting that nurse educated and uh, having her on board so that we have at least a couple of nurses who can be taking care of this. This program has been in place, you said, for about 15 years. Tell me maybe a lesson or experience you've had from being a part of this collaboration or teaching this in Bangalore that now you've maybe applied to your practice in Houston. You know, we think about everything that we teach on the other side, but I'm sure there's things that we learn as we go through it that we apply in our own practices here. One of the things which is important is having all these other experts who are there are doing surgery. So once you get out of fellowship, uh, most of your surgeries end up to you and you're doing it. And now this is your chance to work together with some of the world experts and learn some techniques from each other. So that's a big part of what we do is we help each other out. And, and we come from different schools of thought. For example, Kishore Sandhu comes from Monier School of Thought which does a lot more cricotracheal resections, whereas me and Shian coming from Robin Cotton School of Thought, where we do a lot more cricotracheal reconstructions using cartilage grafts. And there is somewhere, there's an overlap. You can't just strictly say you should be doing this or this. There's definitely an overlap on some of these patients. And, and the other thing what is taught us is how important it is for follow-up. So a lot of what we, we assume when you say, I want this patient to come back in two weeks. 
And some of the things we have learned is some of these patients, uh, they can't come back in two weeks. So it has shown me the pathology, how it changes by not doing certain things at certain times and what happens to them. So that has helped me in my practice here to be more strict about when I say come back in three weeks, there is a reason because early granulation starts to set in and I need to fix it before that. And I have seen patients who have not had that three-week follow-up, what happens to them. And so those are the things you learn. And then the most important thing is humility. We are just a small part of what we can do, but there's so much out there to be done. And it, it is very important for us to think like, we are fortunate to be uh, in a place where we can do the kind of surgery we do, but it just makes you think like, even if your small contribution to educating someone, it plays a big role because that is there for them for the rest of their life. And that has a role where you might not have actively done surgery on, on the patient they're doing, but you definitely have your contribution because you that's the strength of education. To me, uh, you might not see its fruits right then and there, but these are saplings you have planted and then someone else might be enjoying the fruits, but it's good to see all these things happen. Actually, one of the beautiful thing was one of the patients we operated on many years back comes back every year just to say hello and how we have changed the life. So these are things which makes you happy, makes you do what you want to do and makes you get up every day and say, I, I can do more. Yeah, that's really cool. Any unexpected challenges or what was the biggest challenge? I'm, I'm sure there's constant challenges as you try to keep a, a program going too. The challenge is, for example, there are times when you have to say no because what you do might be more harmful if you don't do. And there are times when you need to say, this will be really, really complex and it'll be difficult to manage. Even in our institution, we would be very careful about it, less likely we would be offering things. So you need to at times realize it's better to say no than to cause more harm to the patient. So there are few instances where Patients had come from a long distance and there was a pressure to say, you have to do something about it. But to sit down with them and to say, I don't think it's the right thing to do. You still need the tracheostomy. You need to keep the tracheostomy. And I don't think taking out the tracheostomy with surgery might be a good idea on this. And so you need to realize your limitations, not just your surgical limitations, but everything around to say some patients you need to just say no. And that applies to our practice as well, where you need to just say at times, it's better not to do more harm. Yeah, that was super insightful. <laughs> so Deepak, if anybody wants to collaborate or contribute to the program, how can they get in touch with you or what's the best way? So one of the things, one of my next projects I'm thinking of is there's so much to learn from each other. It's not just me going to India and doing things. I learn a lot of things when I come back. And it could be a patient experience and how they dealt with it. It could be 
how some other surgeon came up with an idea and suggested we could be doing this. So there is a lot of learning which can happen between the two sides. Obviously, pediatric ENT is more mature here than, say, in a country like India where it's still work in progress. And they're just setting up their first pediatric ENT fellowship. Uh, so I'm I'm part of the advisory committee, so it'll, it's a fun thing. But one of the things what we are doing is trying to see if one of the trainees come, come to one of the institutions in the U.S. and a trainee from here can go. So it's a kind of exchange program. Um, that's number one. Number two, other experts out there, they can join me. Anyone is more than welcome to join me and come and see what's being done. You'll be amazed, including you. You should join I us know. as well. I know. I'm like, I'm going to reach out to you after and be like, oh. <laughs> what can I do to help? Sounds amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> our main goal is education. So as part of that, a simple way to contribute would be giving one of the lectures. It is now again with virtual thing. We have done few virtual conferences aimed to teach the local people which have gone really well. Uh, so it can be done virtually as well. But I think the real deal is to be there and experience the whole thing. And uh, Bangalore is a beautiful town. It's it's growing like crazy. And it's very cosmopolitan. So a lot of things to do, plus great food. So you can't beat that. Uh, but for for the experience part of it, just being there makes it special. That's great. Well, as we round it out, any other final pearls, Deepak? I think the main thing for me is, like I told earlier, we are fortunate to be where we are. And it is it is our duty in some ways that whatever way you can contribute, we contribute to the education of our residents here, fellows here. There is a role, and it could be any part of the world. We all need to adopt some place and say, I would be contributing, even in the smallest way, even giving a lecture, even talking to someone there, uh, going about things. Uh, there's so much we can do by helping each other out. And at the end of it, we all are richer. So we need to, to make that attempt to be able to contribute to anyone, anywhere in the world. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Deepak. Are you on social media if anybody wanted to reach out to you? I'm on LinkedIn, uh, so they can easily reach out to me through there. The other way is uh, C-Surgeries. My email is uh, deepak.mehta at csurgeries.com. Uh, they can reach out to there, or they can Google me, get my details off Google as well. But uh, I think the LinkedIn will be the easiest way of reaching out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on. I think it's a wrap. Thank you very much, Kopi. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross. 
and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor Spurgeon Hess and Yvonne Ovijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.